Section 4 of The Art or Craft of Rhetoric. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Art or Craft of Rhetoric. The Rhetoric of Cox, Its Predecessors and Successors. The work of Cox and his chief service to his age was that of a translator and commentator, a sort of work much more important in that century than in this. Cox, like Collette, Grosson, Linacre, and Lilly, served as an intermediary in the transmission to England of the Renaissance and humanistic influence in literature. He had a reputation of his own among European scholars and men of the new learning, and he helped to carry their work into England. And so the questions of rhetoric and of literary form, which deeply concerned all the men of the new learning, came to concern Cox also, and to their elucidation, as is evident from the foregoing inspection of his letters and of the list of his writings, he devoted a large share of his attention. The rhetorics of the Renaissance are mainly founded upon Hermogenes, Cicero, and Quintilian, and following the divisions of these authors are chiefly of two sorts, those that concern themselves with questions of invention and disposition, and those that mainly discuss matters of style and diction. Cox, whose work falls in the first class, refers his readers who may wish to carry their studies further to Hermogenes among the Greeks, or else Tully and Trapassons among the Latins. The Trapassons, or Trapezuntius, referred to, was a typical rhetorician of the Renaissance period. Born in Crete in 1396, he taught Greek at Venice and philosophy and belles lettres at Rome. On account of an attack of his on Quintilian, he was involved in various literary quarrels with Valla, Poggio, and other scholars. He made numerous translations from the Greek into Latin. He died at Rome in 1486. His rhetoric, the first edition of which appeared at Venice circa 1470, is a paraphrase from Hermogenes. His work, transmitting that of his original, was widely circulated and exercised a great influence throughout Europe during the succeeding century. His divisions and order of treatment in a general way are those of Cox, and of course Cox's original, Melanchthon. Orations are of three sorts, judicial, referring to the past, deliberative, to the future, and demonstrative, to the present. The chief parts of an oration are the exordium, narratio, and contentio, whereunder are discussed confirmatio and confutatio, quot sint status, the states of Cox, and de proposizione et divisione. In the last book, book five, is comprehended a discussion de elocutione, wherein the different qualities and kinds of style are considered, a part included by Melanchthon but omitted by Cox for reasons hinted at in his dedicatory epistle. As in Cox's rhetoric, so in most of his predecessors, we frequently find appeal made not only to direct classical authority, but occasionally also to medieval authority and to that of the fathers of the church, especially the Greek fathers as Origen, Basil, and Chrysostom. Most interesting for the history of English rhetoric, however, is the first rhetoric printed in England, which was also the first book printed at St. Albans, the Latin treatise of Traversanus, entitled Fratris Laurenti Guilelmi de Suana, Prohimium in Novum Rhetoricum. The colophon is, 
completatum altum fit hoc opus in alma universitate Cantabrigae. Anno domini quattor decim septaginta octo. Sub protectione regis anglorum Eduardi Quarti. Impressum fit hoc present opus rhetorice facatatus apud filam sancti Albani. Anno domini quattro decim octoginta. The work follows in general the divisions of the ancient rhetorics, especially Cicero, and draws its examples both from Cicero and from the Bible. It is scholastic in tone with frequent reference to the fathers of the church, as St. Bernard, St. Anselm, St. Basil, Beda, etc. Book one discusses quid sit oratis, quid oratis officium, quis eius finis ide patibus eius e orationis. In the third book, style and diction, including tropes and figures, are treated. In this work, however, notwithstanding certain signs of the approaching dawning of the new learning, we are still in the atmosphere of the Middle Ages. With Cox fifty years later, in spite of the rudeness of the new vernacular in which he is working, and the elementary nature of his design, we feel ourselves in a new age. Between Traversanus and Cox, there are two passages in English literature relating to the art of rhetoric which are significant. The former of these, which is perhaps the first printed account of rhetoric in English, is the short passage on the subject in Caxton's Mirror and Description of the World, with many models of the seven sciences as grammar, rhetoric, with the art of memory, etc., 1481, which is of sufficient curious interest to reproduce here in its entirety. D3 Recto Rhetoric is a science to cause another man, by speech or by writing, to believe or to do that thing which thou wouldest have him for to do, to the which thou must first devise some way to make thy hearers glad and well-willing to hear, the which thing to bring to pass thou must devise diverse ways, the first is that thou promise him some marvellous thing, or some other strange thing, or something touching himself, or some things touching his friends or his enemies. Also, when thou hast made him glad to hear thee, thou must take heed that in the matter which thou shewest thou must use five manner things. The first is invention, as to imagine the matter which thou intendest to show, which must be of true things, or like to be true, and to note well how many things in that matter ought to be spoken. The second thing is disposition, which is to show everything of thy matter in order, as when thou hast invented and appointed in thy mind how many things thou wilt speak of. Then thou must dispose everything in order, and which matter shall be first spoken, and which shall be last. The third thing is eloquence, as when thou hast disposed how every point and matter shall be showed in order, then thou must utter it with fair, eloquent words, and not to use many curious terms, for superfluity in everything is to be dispraised, and it hindereth the sentence. And when a man dilateth his matter too long, ere that he utter the effect of his sentence, though it be never so well uttered, it shall be tedious unto the hearers, for every man naturally that heareth another desireth most to know the effect of his reason that telleth the tale. As the philosopher saith, Omnis homo naturatia sire desiderat.
Therefore, the principal point of eloquence writeth, bracket, resteth, close bracket, ever in the quick sentence. And therefore, the least point belonging to rhetoric is to take heed that the tale be quick and sententious. A passage on ars memoratua, or memory, and one on voice and gesture follow. Equally curious are the chapters in Haw's Pastime of Pleasure, chapters 7 through 13, in which we are told how grand amore was received of rhetoric and what rhetoric is, of the first part called invention, and accommodation of poets, of disposition, the second part of rhetoric, of elocution, the third part of rhetoric, with coloring of sentences, of pronunciation, the fourth part of rhetoric, of memory, the fifth part of rhetoric, and the like. No one can complain of the importance attributed to the art of rhetoric in Hawes' allegorical system. Cox's aim in presenting an art or craft of rhetoric to the English public of his day was a simple and a practical one. Education was spreading. New grammar schools were being founded. In much of the work of teaching in these schools, the vernacular necessarily was used. The new learning brought with it a new sense of style and form in prose and there were no textbooks of the subject in existence written in English. Lawyers, ambassadors, preachers, and all public speakers, says Cox in his interesting preface, have need of rhetoric, yet nothing today is less taught. What wretched work do we daily see around us for lack of such teaching? So that when we hear a speaker, very often, great tediousness is engendered to the multitude being present, by occasion whereof the speaker is many times, or he have ended his tale, either left almost alone to his no little confusion, or else, which is a like rebuke to him, the audience falleth for weariness of his ineloquent language on sleep. Furthermore, Cox aims especially to help those who have by negligence or else false persuasions be put to the learning of other sciences, or ever they have attained any mean knowledge of the Latin tongue. For, of course, not only is Latin the accepted central discipline in the humanistic theory of education, but it is the storehouse of all existing learning. The book is intended for young beginners. Others who can read Latin or Greek may consult Hermogenes among the Greeks, or else Tully or Trapezons among the Latins. And to them that be young beginners, nothing can be too plain or too short. We are reminded of the similar words of Colette in his Prohim to the introduction of the parts of speaking for children and young beginners into Latin speech, written for his new school of Powell's in 1510, where that kindly humanist maintains that nothing may be too soft nor too familiar for little children. Cox is thus, it will be seen, little concerned with the theory of rhetoric, his aim is to tell very plainly the manner of the putting together, the invention, of orations of the several kinds then recognized by the rhetoricians. Every point is illustrated by an example. We are told in a given situation what is the leading idea pertinent thereto, which it is incumbent on the orator to bring forward. Most of these leading cases are drawn from Cicero, others from Livy, Sallust, and the like. Then we are shown how Cicero or another actually did put his oration together. The whole method is that of the Ciceronians and the Renaissance educators, simplified and put into the vernacular for the use of those who cannot use Latin texts and manuals. 
Fifty years later, the same method, without simplification or vernacularization, is still in use in the English universities, where the orations of Cicero continue to serve as models in the teaching of rhetoric. Cox's work, then, is designed as a schoolbook and as an elementary introduction for those who have missed the advantages of a scholastic training. His plan is restricted to the treatment of invention and the formal ordering of speech, for that, once mastered, there is no very great mastery to come by the residue. And it is in this that the public speaking of the day is particularly deficient. Questions of style must be postponed to a later generation, after the matter of structure has been mastered. And, indeed, by the time of Sir Thomas Wilson in 1553, the question of style has begun to assert itself, until with the Elizabethans it is the question of questions. Furthermore, if this work, the first essay of my poor and simple wit, find favor, the author promises to indict other works both in this faculty and other. Inasmuch as the rhetoric passed to a second edition, we may conclude that it met with success, and probably the erotomata rhetorica upon which Cox was engaged in 1540 were designed as a part fulfillment of this promise. Cox's art or craft of rhetoric is only in part his own composition. It is, as he frankly avows, largely founded upon the work of another. I have partly translated out of a work of rhetoric written in the Latin tongue, and partly compiled of mine own, and so made a little treatise in a manner of an introduction into this aforesaid science and that in the English tongue. And later, in the conclusion, Cox says, but now I have followed the fashion of Tully, who made a several work of invention. Cicero, however, is not Cox's chief authority, nor does he seem to have taken very much directly out of Cicero's rhetorical writings. The work of rhetoric written in the Latin tongue, out of which Cox translates and on which his work is mainly founded, is the Institutiones Rhetoricae of Melanchthon, published in 1521. Melanchthon is our auteur, so frequently referred to in the course of Cox's work. Readers of Professor C. H. Hereford's scholarly work on the literary relations of England and Germany in the 16th century are aware how close was the connection of English and German scholarship and letters in the first half of that century. Cox, like Melanchthon, was an educator and humanist and inclined to the reformed religious doctrine while his failure to mention Melanchthon's name anywhere is doubtless to be attributed to the prejudice against the German reformers in high quarters in England at this moment. When the idea of bringing out a work on the art of rhetoric written in English first occurred to Cox, it was natural that he should turn to the convenient compendium of the subject recently written by the great humanist educator and religious reformer of Germany, with whom, probably enough, he had already come in contact on the continent. In 1519, Melanchthon had written a larger work on rhetoric, his De Rhetorica Libre Tres, to which Cox refers two or three times, and from which he borrows several passages. In 1521, however, a shorter and a much simplified version adapted to school use was compiled, perhaps from the notes of Melanchthon's lectures, and published with the title Institutiones Rhetoricae, Philip Melanchthon, from the first book of this work, Treating of Invention, Cox draws the greater part of his treatise, 
and this book accordingly is herewith reprinted for convenience of comparison. I reserve for the notes the discussion of the exact relation between the two works. A cursory comparison of the two texts will show the closeness of Cox's dependence on his original. At the same time, numerous passages in Cox seem to be of independent composition. Particularly interesting among these are many of the illustrations drawn from Renaissance and medieval history and literature, as well as some things also from Cicero and the classics. Not only does Cox add to Melanchthon, but he freely omits and condenses as suits his purpose. Thus, as already stated, he omits the whole of books two and three on dispositio and elocutio. Melanchthon's own direct prototype seemed to be Hermogenes, or Trapezuntius, the latter he refers to with approval, Cicero, and Quintilian. All of these, except the last, are expressly named by Cox as trustworthy authorities. Cox's rhetoric doubtless served its turn with its own generation, but any direct influence from it on later English rhetorical writers can scarcely be traced. Cox's work helped to teach better order and method in public speaking, an aim which also inspires his next important successor, Sir Thomas Wilson. But with anything beyond the structural part of composition, Cox is hardly concerned. The preoccupation with style comes in with the next generation. Cox's own prose has some historical value among the none too numerous monuments of English prose in the first half of the 16th century. His style is of purpose extremely simple and plain, in order to meet the understanding of young beginners. But joined with his simplicity, there is a certain rudeness, which is not the strong and eloquent rudeness of Latimer, and a certain awkwardness of phrase and syntax which prevent our placing him as a writer of English anywhere near his great predecessor Mallory. His great contemporaries, Moore, Collett, Tyndale, and Coverdale, and Eliot, or his great successors, Asham and Wilson. He writes purely didactic prose, it is true, in which there is no opportunity for style. He saves himself from excessive Latinisms. His manner is straightforward and to the point, but little more than this can be said for him as a writer of English. In Cox's day, English prose is but in the making, and with few, except one or two original spirits, does it advance to style. And Cox is not one of the originators. Nevertheless, in his way, by precept, if not by example, he contributed to the formation of the new art, and so is to be reckoned with in the history of English prose. The next and the only other important English rhetoric of the 16th century after Cox was the art of rhetoric for the use of all such as are studious of eloquence set forth in English by Thomas Wilson. Anno Domini Quindecim quinquaginta tres, mente januari. Wilson's work is much superior to Cox in originality and scope. Wilson follows the Ciceronian tradition with more independence. He aims to cover the entire field of the older rhetorics, treating in order of invention, disposition, elocution, i.e. diction, or an applying of apt words and sentences to the matter, memory, and utterance, or a framing of the voice, countenance, and gesture after a comely manner. The parts of an oration, too, from the entrance to the conclusion, are as in Cox and his predecessors, 
and so are the sorts of oratory, oration demonstrative, deliberative, and judicial. In his first and second books, except for greater amplification and a surer hand, Wilson's work differs little in structure and design from Cox's. The rest of the work, however, is entirely additional matter, and the chief interest of Wilson's rhetoric is in his discussion of English style and diction in his third book. It is probable enough that Wilson may have seen Cox's book, but evidently he owes less to it than to their common sources. After Wilson, the emphasis in the popular rhetorics of the day is upon style and ornament rather than upon structure and argument, as with Cox and Wilson. No original work, however, is done until Ben Jonson's scholarship touches the subject in his Timber or Discoveries, and until Bacon, in his Advancement of Learning, stirs the earth a little about the roots of this science, reprehending the first distemper of learning when men study words and not matter, and uttering upon the rhetorical precept and practice of the preceding century, upon Carr and Ascham, upon Sturmius and Erasmus, the trenchant comment that the whole inclination and bent of those times was rather towards copy than weight. The outline and analysis of Philip Melanchthon's Institutiones Rhetoricae has been omitted from this recording. End of section four.